0: Well, as we come to the Word of God this morning, please bow with me in a word of prayer. Our loving Father, we indeed thank you that you have sent your Son, Emmanuel, that God has taken human flesh and has walked among us, that we have a Savior whose name is Jesus Christ. And I pray as we open your Word this morning that you might increase. Our love for him, our desire for him, and our longing to see him return to this earth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I don't know if uh, you've read the Christmas book, "The Year of the Perfect Christmas," but that is quickly becoming one of my favorite to read with my children. It describes a young girl in the early 1900s in Appalachia. Her father has gone off to fight in World War I, and through the bulk of the story, she is waiting expectantly for him. She doesn't know if he'll return. She doesn't know when he'll return. But it's particularly urgent this year because the family in the story is required to provide the Christmas tree for that town, and it needs to be delivered on Christmas. And so the book builds anticipation and longing as you're in the shoes of this young child as she waits for her, ch- her father to return. Now, I won't spoil the story for you. I encourage you to uh, pick it up at your local library and read it for yourself. But it's stories like this, and I'm sure you can think of one uh, for yourself, whether it's a movie or a book, that, that describes this sort of expectant waiting, this sort of longing for something to arrive, for someone to arrive, and there's a certain expectation that you feel like it could come at any moment. I believe that this reality that we know well illustrates what the Old Testament saints experienced as they waited for the Messiah to arrive. God had promised that the Messiah would come, and yet generations came and went without any sign of Him. It's as if Israel was, was sitting there by the front door with their noses up against the, the window glass, waiting to see if He would come. And each generation would arrive, and they would take their turn to watch and wait, and then they would pass away, and the next generation would take the post without any sign of His coming. And yet, with each successive generation, God would send prophets, those who would speak on His behalf and remind His people, keep waiting, keep longing for Him. He is coming. Trust my promise." And so their longing, Israel's longing, continued to grow for this promised one. They wanted desperately for him to come and to make things right. The Messiah is a term which comes from the Hebrew word for anointed. It is translated in the Old Testament as anointed, and in the New Testament as Christ. So when we talk about Jesus Christ, we're talking about Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one. It refers to a man who was promised by God in the Old Testament as the one to rescue God's people and to bring a reign of righteousness and restore and renew the entire planet. The faithful men and women of Israel continue to wait and to long for this Messiah, and each Israelite would wonder, maybe he would come in my generation. Our theme for Advent this year is longing for the Messiah. And from now through Christmas, we will examine the expectation created through several Old Testament passages for the coming of Christ. And there's three reasons why it's beneficial for us to look back at these Old Testament prophecies. The first is that it gives us a better knowledge of Jesus Christ himself. You see, the better we transport ourselves back, putting ourselves in the shoes of these Old Testament saints, the better we can understand the one for whom they waited. In other words, understanding Israel's longing for the Messiah should increase our knowledge of Christ. Who was it that they waited for? What is it that they wanted to see Him do? And how did Jesus fulfill those longings? And so the more we see these prophecies, the more we know of Christ, the more we look for His return, and the more we love Him. But the second reason it's helpful is because it gives us a better knowledge of the Old Testament saints, those to whom we are united in faith. Even though we are on this side of the cross and are able to participate in the new covenant, being united to the Messiah, being united to Christ, we share something with the Old Testament saints. And that is, we do not physically see the Messiah right now. We must wait for that to happen. We. Even though we do not see him, we love him, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verse 8. But we, too, are waiting for the day when we can see him and behold him face to face. And so as we see how they lived by faith, we are encouraged to do the same in our lives. But the third reason it's helpful for us to look at these Old Testament passages is that it gives us a better knowledge of apologetic answers. You see, fulfilled prophecy, particularly the fulfilled prophecies of the Messiah, are one of the greatest arguments for the truthfulness of Scripture. As we see all of the prophecies that were made about this coming one, about this one that God would send, and then we see in the pages of the New Testament those desires, those longings, those prophecies fulfilled, we're reminded that God indeed stands by His Word, that God is indeed faithful to His promise. And it gives great veracity to His Word. And so as we look at these, these will even give strengthen your ability to stand witness to Christ and to His Word by seeing the ways that these prophecies were fulfilled. Now, the subject of Old Testament promises concerning the Messiah is a very vast subject. It, it in one sense, covers all 39 books of the Old Testament, uh, and, uh, and so there's much that we could cover, but we're going to begin where all stories must start, and that is at the beginning. And so, we'll begin there as well, and I invite you to turn in your personal copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 3, to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, you will find a copy in the pew rack directly in front of you, and you'll find our passage on page 3. Now, this book, Genesis, along with Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were written by Moses, the great leader of Israel. Before he passed away, he recorded the words that God gave him to the nation of Israel that he was leading. The New Testament identifies these five books together as the law of Moses or the Torah of Moses. Torah simply meaning teaching. We often call it by the Greek name, the Pentateuch, meaning five scrolls. It's referring to these five, first five books of Moses. Now, Moses wrote Genesis in order to give Israel and, by extension, the rest of humanity a record of how the world began and how the nation of Israel came to be and what God, the Creator, has been about. What is He doing in this world? What is He seeking to accomplish? What is He about? Genesis begins to answer that question. It's a book of historical record, but it's a book particularly of theological history. This doesn't mean that it's been distorted by its theology. It simply means it's an accurate historical record that has a theological emphasis. In other words, it's emphasizing God's action and intention in the midst of the history. And so Genesis is a book that is crucial for understanding the Old Testament, really for understanding the whole Bible. You will not understand what is taking place in the rest of the Bible if you don't have Genesis, if you don't get what's going on in Genesis, because everything begins there. Hence the name Genesis, the book of beginnings. So this morning, as we talk about longing for the Messiah and these expectations of the Messiah, I want to direct your attention to the first promise of the Messiah in Scripture. And for that reason, it's been given the Latin title Proto-Evangelium, meaning the first gospel. The first gospel is found in a curious place. In fact, you may have skipped over it in your Bible reading. But we need to grasp the significance of this verse because it is a promise from God that shapes the rest of redemptive history. This is crucial. In particular, for us this Christmas season, this first promise will help us to see that Jesus and Jesus alone is the only deliverer who can save us from our greatest problem. That is sin and death and the devil. Jesus is the only one who can give us what we truly need, and that is ultimate and complete salvation. And so, we'll look at this first book of the Bible, this first promise, and see what it has to tell us about the baby born in Bethlehem on the first Christmas. And so, let's read Genesis chapter 3. We'll get the context and the promise this morning. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, The man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Thus ends the reading of God's... Word. Now, in the midst of this chapter, comes a promise that we must explore. And so, this morning, I want to show you three ways that the promise of God in Genesis three verse fifteen is significant for our understanding of Jesus and the salvation He brings. We want to grow in our understanding of Jesus and the salvation that He brings, and Genesis three fifteen helps enriching that understanding. So there's three ways that this promise is significant. The first is this promise is significant because, number one, it delivers light into humanity's darkness. This promise is significant because it delivers light into humanity's darkness. You see, for us to understand and appreciate the promise of this passage, we need to understand the context, and that means we need to go back to chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 sets the scene of the world. God, in His divine initiative, creates the heavens and the earth. He first formed the earth in the first three days, and then He filled the earth in the next three. On the seventh day, He rested. After each day, He declared the creation to be good. And we see that after five and a half days, in the middle of the sixth day, He has crafted everything on the planet except for humanity. The animals are roaming the earth, they're roaming the land, they're they're swimming in the seas, they're flying in the air. The earth is filled except for humanity. But in this we see that the earth is completely set up perfectly for God's crowning jewel of his creation, that is people. And let's look at that the account of man's creation in Genesis 1 And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Friends, this is where creation climaxed to, was to this creation of male and female, of humanity. Everything is led up to this. And now even the way that the language works has changed. There was a pattern, a rhythmic pattern throughout the creation account, but now we get to this, and there's like this theological pregnant pause in which God, before He launches into the next action, the next creative action, He stops and consults with Himself, the let us make man in our image. The man and the woman, known as humans, would be completely unique and special, unlike anything else. They would specifically be made in God's image and God's likeness. There would be nothing like them in all of creation. Sure, there may be some shared physical attributes, but they hold a unique possession of the image of God. And so they would mirror God. They would represent God upon this planet. They would possess a unique relationship with God that no other creature would have. Friends, this shows us here even in the first chapter of the Bible why there is a distinction between men, between humanity, and animals, the animal kingdom. Yes, we have a lot of physical similarities, but we are different from them. We are not just an advanced mammal. We have the image of God, which is unlike any other creature upon this earth. God bestowed humanity with the status and calling of royalty. Did you you catch those, those words? In verse 26, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over all these things. And in verse 28, he, he commissions them. He says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all the creatures. This is the commissioning of God for them to reign and to rule over the creation. They are there in God's place. God is commissioning them to rule in God's place. Now, that's not because God is advocating His role. He's like, listen, I don't want to rule this planet anymore. You guys do it. No, this is delegation. God is still the ultimate authority, but He's put these other ones in charge in His stead. They are His representatives. They are to literally be God's authority on the ground. And so, they're to subdue the earth, it says, and they're to have dominion over the animals. This denotes their power, their authority, that they're to have over God's creation, not to exploit it for their own selfish purposes, but in order to steward it, in order to care for it on God's behalf. They are to take care of it as it is God's creation, and therefore, they are to work it and steward it. This is an amazing truth, that God would create a creature, God would create us humanity to steward His creation. David, the poet of Israel, was still marveling at this truth thousands of years later, and we have it recorded for us in Psalm chapter 8. He said, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet. David is in awe that we, sinful, humble man who are made from dust would be chosen by God to have dominion over this earth. And so we see here in Genesis 1, that at the apex of His creation, God plants His image there in the middle of His creation. And so Adam and Eve are there to represent God to the world and the world to God. And so Genesis chapter 1 and 2 paints a beautiful picture of the Garden of Eden. Our origin as humanity all began in a garden, an idyllic garden where everything was available to them. They had no needs. They were in perfect harmony with God, their Creator. Their joy of fellowship with Him was unhindered, and their consciences were pure and undefiled. But we know the story doesn't end there. It's not long before these representatives of God were then ruled by a usurper, by one who tried to come in and Try to usurp the power that God had given to them. And this is what we read in Genesis chapter 3. Satan, in the form of a serpent, enters the Garden of Eden. And he goes right to Eve, and he attacks the Word of God first, and then he attacks the character of God, believing that God didn't really say this. His Word can't really be trusted. And listen, God's just trying to deceive you so that he, He's trying to hold out on you, He doesn't want you to be like Him. He's actually jealous, and so He doesn't really want to share anything with you. He's doing this just to keep you in check. Eve and Adam after her falls for this lie, and they bite into the forbidden fruit. As As it said, it said Adam was right there with her, and he ate as well. Adam was tasked with protecting the garden with caring for it. He should have gotten the serpent out of there right away as God's steward, God's protector of God's place. But instead, he allowed the serpent to, to talk and to he listened to it. And in so, he and his wife fell, and the fall was great. This is one of the most tragic moments in human history, in which God's chosen representatives, those who had this unique and special relationship with him, unlike anything else in all of creation, that they committed cosmic treason against him. They rebelled against his authority. And it's right at this tragic moment, as, even as we're reading the text, right, and we're hearing this conversation with the serpent, this is like the part of the movie where the audience calls out, no, don't do it. Don't go in there, because we know what's coming. And so, So, too, we read this account and we're like, no, don't disobey the Lord. Don't rebel against His authority. But they do. They turn their back on the God that created them. And, of course, this heinous crime will not go unnoticed by the Creator. And that's where we find our passage today. What will God say to these people? How will He respond to their sin? Well, as we read in verses 14 through 19, we get God's response to Adam, to Eve, and to the serpent. He speaks a word of judgment and the consequences of the sin to the woman and to the man in verses 16 through 19. But before He gets there, He first speaks to the serpent. Verse 14, you'll see, it says, "'The Lord God said to the serpent.'" Here, he seems to outline a judgment that applies specifically to the reptile species we know as serpent or snake, saying that among these beasts, you must go to uh, the ground. You must go on your belly. Did this snake walk before? Did it have legs? We don't know exactly. There seem to be indications that if he's to go on his belly for the rest of his life, there may have been some appendages before that, but that's pure speculation. But then the Lord turns in verse 15 and gives a more significant judgment in this verse, and it's targeted not just toward the reptile species, but it is targeted to the inspiring wicked agent behind the serpent here in this story, and that is Satan himself, the archenemy of God. And so the first point of significance I want us to see here this morning in where this promise is located is that it's in the midst of humanity's dark day. Adam and Eve, the, our representative parents, have just fallen, have just rebelled against their good and loving Creator. And there they are in the midst of their sin, in the midst of their rebellion, and it's in that, at that low point that God delivers a word of promise. Light begins to shine in the darkness. And friends, this is a reminder that this promise and all of God's promises shines into our darkness as well. This promise gives hope for all of Adam and Eve's descendants who are lost in the darkness of sin and suffering. We too can latch on to this promise. We too can find light in the midst of our darkness. Because whether we think of it this way or not, we are all in darkness on our own. We are all just as doomed as our original parents because we all fell in Adam. We all are sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23. And the wages of our sin, Romans 6, 23, is death. We, the consequences for our sin is death. We are in the darkness of our own sin, In our own flesh, there is no way out. We need salvation, which is why this promise brings hope. Friends, we too are cast out of the Garden of Eden. We are not in paradise, and we cannot knock on the door and get in on our own merits. We need someone that can take us into that garden, that can take us into paradise again. We need someone with the righteous merit to be able to take us in to where God is again. And that's what this promise does. It reminds us that God is at work and God is doing something to rescue sinful humanity such as us. And so we see, first, in this promise, it's significant because it delivers light into humanity's darkness. But secondly, it's significant because it describes the war through humanity's history. This promise describes the war through humanity's history. Here we'll look at the specifics of verse 15. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Here he says that God will add hostility or enmity between the relationship of the serpent with the woman. This will not only exist between Eve and Satan, those two individuals, but in particular, there's two groups of people between your offspring, to the serpent, and her offspring, speaking of the woman. Now, some have read this verse as describing what what does God mean here, and some have interpreted it to mean that this only describes the fact that from this point on, humans and snakes would have a fraught relationship, and particularly women and snakes would have a fraught relationship, that they just won't like each other. And particularly, humanity will not like snakes. They'll just forever hate snakes. Now, there might be something to that explanation. We, you know, there's, there's, a, personal, there's a certain amount of, uh, of real attestation to that, right? I mean, there's not many people in here that would raise their hand and say, ooh, I love snakes. Um, but I believe that that explanation misses the full import of this statement and fails to recognize, get this, even how Moses, the author, understood this. And so it's clear that as we talk about offspring of both parties, we're dealing with two groups. In particular, there's there's a moral separation between these two groups. Again, we're in the midst of this cosmic... A a sin that just happened, where you have God who's created His his representatives, and then Satan comes in and attacks those very representations of God. Those who bear the image of God, Satan goes and attacks them. And so, it is with the offspring of the woman and the the serpent that we have these two groups. One group, the offspring of the women, identifies with the Lord. The Lord identifies with that line, that offspring. And the offspring of the serpent does not refer to physical reptiles that are produced down through the centuries. It's talking about those people who follow in the rebellion of this ancient serpent, those who follow the voice and the deeds and obey the words of Satan. And so we have the godly ones, the offspring of the women, and we have the wicked ones, the offspring of the serpent. And the war, the enmity, the hostility between these two groups surfaced immediately within the historical record. For in the next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, there's conflict between the first two sons of Adam and Eve. It didn't make it to the next generation Cain and Abel, the first two sons. Abel offers a sacrifice pleasing to the Lord. Cain offers one which does not please the Lord, and Cain then in his jealousy rises up and kills his brother. By doing so, Cain shows that he is an offspring of the serpent. John in 1 John chapter 3 verse 12 identifies this identification of Cain He shows what side Cain was clearly on. John says, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Again, we see these two lines, this separation, this moral separation between the offspring of the serpent, the wicked and evil ones that follow Satan, and the offspring of the women who are righteous. Because of Cain's actions, he's cursed by God, similar to the serpent, and sent out of the land. He's forced to live the life of a nomad. And the text then in Genesis 4 gives the first genealogical record where so-and-so gave birth to so-and-so who gave birth to so-and-so, which is common throughout the book of Genesis, but this is the first one that we have in chapter 4, verse 17 through 24. And we see some things that are unique in this genealogical line of Cain. They are the first ones to invent musical instruments. They begin metallurgy, working with copper and iron. They are um, also ones who uh, build a city. But it's a civilization that is stained by sin, and Moses makes it clear that this line of Cain is indeed the offspring of the serpent, not the offspring of the woman. Because, you see, the genealogy of Cain begins with a brother who murdered his brother and tries to excuse it. Am I my brother's keeper? What? I was supposed to take care of him? I didn't know that. And it ends in verses 23 and 24 with Lamech, who Lamech doesn't just nonchalantly try to excuse his sin of murder, but in fact he boasts about his murders. He said, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. This is a far cry from God's intention for humanity that he lays out in Genesis 1 and 2. And so Genesis 4 gives us a genealogy of the offspring of the serpent, but the offspring of the woman, the righteous line, is picked up at the end of the chapter and into chapter 5. Look at Genesis 4, verse 25 with me. It says, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at the time people, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Here we see that a replacement son is born. Eve says that God has appointed for me another offspring because Cain uh, killed Abel. And Moses also makes it clear that this is the line, not Cain's line, but here Seth's line that is the line that is, there is, are the righteous ones because it's here that they begin to call upon the name of the Lord. you notice that, the last phrase of chapter 4? At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. They began to worship the Lord, began to pray to Him. This is the line that is following after Yahweh. This continued righteous line, genealogical line, is further emphasized in chapter 5. Look at the next verse, chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, He created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Here we see the likeness of God that God intended in creation has continued to be passed down through the line of Seth. Now, we know that all humanity, in one sense, retains the image of God, but here there's a unique relationship in terms of the righteous line of Seth that they, have a, they, they treasure and keep that relationship with the Lord. They seek to follow in His ways. And so we hear, see here, immediately following Genesis chapter 3, there are two genealogical lines developing, and they're warring against each other, the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And this cosmic war, friends, plays out through the rest of Scripture. This explains the rest of your Bible in one sense. That there is this cosmic battle going on between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. You see, the great enemy of God is always seeking to thwart the plan of God. He attacks the people of God, either through murder, as we see, the way Cain does, or through deception and deceit as we see the way he attacked Eve and Adam in the garden. This war between these two genealogical lines, the wicked and the righteous, are seen in the conflict throughout the book of Genesis of the patriarchs. God's chosen line, remember Abraham was chosen and then his son Isaac and on down through the line, that chosen line was then constantly uh, harassed by the Canaanites of the land until they get down into Egypt, you'll remember, in the book of Exodus, and what's the status of the righteous, God's righteous line? They're enslaved. They're enslaved by the Pharaoh in Egypt. They're, they're being, in fact, systematically uh, killed. The Pharaoh has ordered that all the male children be slaughtered so that their genealogical line would be snuffed out. But God is not going to allow the offspring of the serpent to ultimately defeat and triumph over the offspring of the woman. He frees his people, they then travel to the promised land, the land of Canaan, as there they go in under Joshua and they have to defeat the Canaanites. Can- Canaan was cursed back uh, in Genesis chapter 9. And therefore, the Israelites are carrying out that curse upon the seed of the serpent. This cosmic war is seen also thousands of years later when Satan inspires King Herod to kill all the baby boys of Bethlehem. When Satan seeks to tempt Jesus in the wilderness, seeking for Jesus to forego the cross. And we see it when Satan inspires Judas to betray the Lord, seeking to put an end to his life. And friends, this war described in Genesis 3.15 carries on to today. There are still these two lines, those who follow the voice and, and, and authority of Satan and those who follow the Lord, the one true God. This explains why the church is persecuted around the globe and has been through the centuries. It explains why God's people are maligned and ridiculed. And it explains why we face temptation today. Because God's enemy, Satan, is working to derail God's purposes. And that means attacking his representatives, his people. This war will continue until Satan is ultimately defeated and destroyed. And that leads us this morning to the third and final way that this prophecy is significant. The third and final way that this prophecy is significant is because it declares the victory of humanity's deliverer. This prophecy declares the victory of humanity's deliverer. We're stuck in this cosmic battle as a curse. Satan continues to do war against God's people. Who will set us free from this? Who will deliver us from this bondage of sin? Who will free us from this suffering? God answers, begins to answer that question in Genesis 3.15. Look at the second part of verse 15 with me. It says, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The big question here, seen in this conflict in Genesis chapter 3, is who will ultimately rule God's creation? God had his chosen representatives sitting there in Eden to rule The usurper comes in, attacks those representatives, and dethrones them. And now Satan is in some sort of power and rulership over them. And so the question will be, will Satan continue to rule? Will Satan continue to have a certain authority and power? Or will God's chosen representatives ultimately rule upon this earth? And God begins to answer that question here at the second half of verse 15. Now, there's a few features of this part of the verse that we need to notice. and We've got to slow down here to kind of look at this, and uh, it's important that we do to understand the nuances that are here. The first thing we need to notice is the focus changes from a group. Remember, we were talking about these genealogical lines of a group of the righteous and a group of the wicked. Well, now it's focusing down to an individual, an individual. Now, the word offspring or seed, depending on your translation in Hebrew, can refer, just like the English word, to either a group or to an individual. This is similar to uh, the word sheep that we would use, right? If you were to talk about your sheep, context would have to describe whether you're talking about your whole flock or whether you're talking about one animal, because the word is used in a collective sense and in a singular individual sense. So too with this word, offspring. It can refer to a group, it can also refer to an individual, but it depends on the context to know what we're speaking of. I also say that this verse may indicate that this individual will not be conceived by normal human means. The word for offspring here is seed, something that men contribute to conception, not women. And so, for this individual to be the seed of the woman may indicate that this person is not conceived with normal human seed, i.e., setting up for the virgin birth. We'll tie that in later. But the second thing we need to see here in this verse is the masculine pronouns, the masculine pronouns. It says, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, the King James translates it, the pronoun as it. It shall bruise your head. But in Hebrew, the, the, the pronoun is masculine. It's a he. Now, this, understandably, has con- probably confused the King James translators. It's, we're talking about the offspring of the woman. So, wouldn't it make sense that it would be a she? Shouldn't it be uh, her heel that is bruised, not his heel? But here we see, with the change of the pronouns, the focus changes from the woman to a man. The offspring spoken of, the particular individual offspring that is spoken of here in this verse is a male. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." But thirdly, we need to see the disparity between the wounds that are inflicted here in this verse. This is talking about some wounding that's taking place between the the serpent and this offspring of the woman. It says that the offspring of the woman, he shall bruise your head. A bruise, a strike to a head, is much more detrimental than a strike to the heel, And what is being communicated is that the strike, a bruise to the head is fatal, whereas a strike or a bruise to the heel is not fatal. Here we see that this is not an offspring of the serpent. This isn't like a descendant of the serpent. But notice who receives this bruising to the head. The Lord God says to the serpent, He'll bruise your head, serpent. He'll bruise your head, Satan. In other words, the very original cause of all of this is the one that will receive the ultimate blow. And so the picture we have here is that that of a future male offspring of Eve who will ultimately defeat Satan, even though he will suffer in the process. He will have his heel bruised, but in the process, he will ultimately defeat Satan, bruising his head. Now in order to defeat such a supernatural being as Satan, this one must have at least supernatural qualities of some sort, must have some sort of supernatural ability or power in order to defeat Satan. And as in the midst of this promise, remember where this is located. Mankind was just created perfect in paradise. They lost paradise because of their sin, because of their rebellion, and now here in the midst of the cleanup and the follow-up, God promises a deliverer who will save them. In context, that must mean that He's bringing them back to what they lost. He must be restoring to that which they just left. They would be restored to Eden, be restored to paradise, the earth, the earth must be made right again. What Satan brought about and the way that he messed up this planet and the way that he deceived humanity, this deliverer must make it all right in the end. And so we know that there must be a man, an offspring of the woman, who will reign upon this earth and he will succeed where Adam failed. This earth must be reclaimed for God through the work of a human. Guys, God could have have redeemed this planet in many different ways that he planned, but he chose by doing it through the work of a man, by doing the work of humanity. He originally created mankind, and even through the fall, he did not jettison or reject that original plan for mankind to rule upon this earth. Instead, he chose to set up his own son as the one who would rule upon this earth, as the one who would step in where Adam failed. The second Adam would succeed where the first Adam failed. And so here in Genesis 3.15, God gave us an acorn of a promise and it was planted in the ground. And through the many centuries of the Old Testament, it was watered and it continued to grow and it continued to, to rise up until it came to full fruition on the first Christmas with the arrival of Jesus of Nazareth. Each succeeding generation Began looking for this God promised deliverer. God, when will you bring him? Will it be in our day? Eve may have thought that she was giving birth to that deliverer in Genesis 4, verse 1, when she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. I may be thinking this first one that I deliver will be the offspring that will crush the serpent's head. Of course, that didn't prove to be true. But we see it even in her hope in 425 when she gave birth to Seth. And then she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Maybe this would be the one. We see the hope, the expectation also in Noah's father who named Noah and said that maybe this one, maybe Noah would be the one to deliver us. Noah's father said this, he said, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work, from the painful toil of our hands. You hear the allusions back to the curses in Genesis chapter 3, the toil of the ground, the curse of the ground that was given to Adam. Adam's, or Noah's father saying, maybe this one will be the one who will set us free and deliver us. And notice, it's not just the defeat of Satan, it's also the relief personally of what we feel in the own ache of the curse. But as we know, through each successive generation, those hopes were not fulfilled. They were left looking for the promised one who would deliver them from their sin, from their suffering, from their bondage. And as time went on, God continued to reveal new information regarding this Messiah. The portrait continued to get filled in. Have you ever watched an artist who's painted a portrait and they begin to start with some, some major moves with their paintbrush upon the canvas, and as an untrained eye, we're sitting back going, what are you drawing? We don't understand what's going to take place. Even if we know where they're headed with this, we don't see how it's going to be shaped out of what we initially see. But as each stroke of the artist's brush goes upon the canvas, it, the image becomes clearer and clearer. And this is exactly what takes place as we begin to compile the prophecies going through the Old Testament. Each one is another brushstroke upon the canvas, and we begin to see the picture of the Messiah come clearer and clearer so that when He arrived on the scene, it was clear that this one fit this image. No, other, no prophecy in the Old Testament gave the full portrait, but all of them together gave it so that when the New Testament, we turn the page into the New Testament and Jesus of Nazareth arrives on the scene, it is then that all of these prophecies come into focus. It was Jesus who ultimately fulfilled the promise of Genesis 3.15. Friends, who is the deliverer who will crush Satan's head, who will bring us back to Eden, who will relieve us of our sin and our suffering? It is Jesus and Jesus alone. He was the male descendant of Eve, as the genealogy of Luke chapter 3 proves. He was not conceived through a human father, but his mother Mary became pregnant when the Holy Spirit came upon her. He was truly man and yet truly God, and therefore was able to totally and completely deal with the supernatural enemy of God. He came from the kingly line of David, and therefore was qualified to sit upon the throne in the kingdom of God and rule rightly where David or sorry, where Adam failed. It was Jesus. And Jesus alone, who would suffer a cruel death upon a cross, who would be buried and rise again on the third day, rising victorious over sin and death and Satan. And Revelation chapter 20 reveals to us that in a future day, it is Jesus who will cast Satan into the lake of fire to be destroyed once and for all, for all of eternity. In the end, Jesus will have the victory. Jesus wins, friends. And this is what the promise of Genesis 3.15 sets us up for, to be looking for the one who wins in the end, the one who will bring us back to Eden. And that is what Revelation 21 and 22 tells us, is that when, because we know Jesus, we will be ushered into the new heavens and the new earth that will be recreated in which God dwells and we can walk with him and know him and, and have ourselves completely transformed. He will remake this earth, make all things new because of the work of this deliverer Jesus alone fulfills the promise of Genesis 3:15 and so all of this friends that we've looked at this morning here in this promise prompts us here to ask this question do you know this deliverer do you personally know Jesus of Nazareth have you looked upon his life his death his resurrection and truly trusted and believed that that was for you? Have you considered how desperate your plight is on your own? That without this deliverer to save you from your sin, that you are totally and utterly completely lost? That you will find the same fate as Satan himself, a complete and utter destruction because of your sin? But there's hope because God made a promise and God kept that promise and God sent his son That all who would look upon him with faith would find salvation now and forevermore. That their souls, their lives would be eternally safe in Christ. And that offer of salvation is available to you this morning if you would put your faith in the deliverer that was promised here in Genesis 3.15. That you cannot save yourself. There's no amount of good deeds, no amount of religious actions, no amount of good track record that you can have because we are all born in sin. We all fall short of God's glory. But the life is available to us if we would but believe and trust in Jesus. And so friends, don't be fooled by all the advertising and marketing this Christmas season. Nothing purchased with money can ultimately satisfy us. Only the Savior, who purchased your redemption through His own blood, can ultimately bring eternal delight. And so I invite you to believe the promise of God and turn to Him today and find life in His name. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word this morning, the promise given in Genesis 3.15 that indeed there is a Deliverer who was coming and who we know did come, the Deliverer who is your Son. And Father, we thank you and praise you that you have sent this Redeemer of your, your own self to come and to save us But, Father, it requires that we would humble our hearts, that we would look to Christ, that we would believe in him, and that we would rest in him and him alone. And I pray that you'd work in each one of our hearts to confirm that faith in us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to say, if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, I would love to talk to you. Even if you have questions about the faith, questions about who Jesus is, about the scriptures, Please come down afterward. I'd love to speak with you and introduce you to this great deliverer uh, that can be yours today.